You're tuned in to the Coach Onamdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Later in the broadcast, chess champ Jennifer Yu explains how much of the hit Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, rings true. But first... No hate, no fear. Immigrants are welcome here. No hate, no fear. Immigrants are welcome here. That's the sound of crowds protesting at Dulles International Airport shortly after former President Trump barred citizens of several majority Muslim countries from entering the United States. What is commonly called the Muslim ban was federal policy for four years. President Biden lifted the ban on his very first day as president, greatly relieving Muslims and their allies, but thousands of families still suffer the ban's consequences, including many here in the Washington region. What damage did the ban do, and how are Muslim advocates and their allies trying to reverse its worst consequences? Joining us now is Edward Ahmed Mitchell, an attorney and the deputy director of the Council of American Islamic Relations. Edward Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. We'll get to the ban in a minute, but first tell us about your organization, the Council on American Islamic Relations, commonly known as CARE. What does it do? Sure. CARE is our nation's largest Muslim civil rights organization. We were founded back in in 1994 before anyone really even knew what the word Islamophobia meant uh, because we recognize that just like there's the NAACP for African Americans, uh, that the American Muslim community needed an organization to stand up for, fight for, defend the civil rights of our community and empower our community to advance positive change in our country. So over the past 27, 25 years now, we've been focusing on countering anti-Muslim bigotry in the court of law and the court of public opinion, uh, building ties with other civil rights groups from different communities, making sure that we're empowering young American Muslims to uh, take on the struggle to advance positive change. And finally, I think making sure we're not just focusing on issues that seem unique to Muslims, but all the issues that people should care about, issues of justice, police brutality, racism, economic opportunity, uh, and of course, pursuing a, a just humanitarian foreign policy. So we are essentially a civil rights and advocacy organization uh, with a, a Muslim perspective. Let's go back to 2015, when then-candidate Donald Trump made headlines calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Can you remember what you and Muslim American friends and colleagues were thinking when you first heard those words? Well, to be honest with you, um, my my first reaction was, uh, I can't believe he said that. My second reaction was, this man will never be president and this will never happen. Uh, Obviously, I I was wrong on a few different counts. Um, I think that, you know, the American Muslim community um, very quickly recognized that Donald Trump's call for a complete ban on Muslims coming to the United States was going to unleash um, a new wave of very dangerous anti-Muslim bigotry. We as Muslims had been hearing that sort of thing in the dark recesses of the internet for years. That was nothing new. But the fact that a high-profile, highly-ranked president, a candidate for president of the United States, had said that and was wildly applauded by his audience really indicated that anti-Muslim bigotry had gone from fringe to mainstream, especially within the Republican Party, and that even if he didn't become president, even if a Muslim ban never happened, uh, we were in for a real threat of people being whipped up uh, and feeling like they can you know, turn their anti-Muslim bigotry um, into action. And, and obviously, that is exactly what happened, a rise in hate crimes, a rise in discrimination. And of course, Donald Trump was elected and then implemented a Muslim ban. So I think we were shocked 
concerned but not cowed. I think it just you know made the Muslim community even more intent on standing up for our rights and turning out to vote uh, in 2016. Joining us now is Carmel Delshad, who is a reporter and editor at WMU. Carmel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo. Carmel, which countries were ultimately included in that travel ban? Well, there were several iterations of the ban, the first one being the harshest from January 2017, eventually down to what is colloquially called Muslim Ban 3.0. Countries like Libya, Nigeria, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Yemen, um, Kyrgyzstan were also added, roughing, uh, roughly about 13 countries in total uh, being affected by this ban. Despite the fact that Trump had made bigoted remarks about Muslims, as Edward Ahmed Mitchell pointed to earlier, his administration did not bill what it called the travel ban as a Muslim ban. How did the Trump administration justify the ban? Well, if you look at when Trump actually signed this presidential proclamation, he said, quote, I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States. So that was at the signing of this. Of course, they, they likely knew they couldn't call it a Muslim ban in the proclamation, but it was under the umbrella of what they called national security under his America First policy um, to stop terrorism and, and what they call terrorists coming from in the country. Um, rights groups obviously immediately took issue with this from the ACLU to CARE to other uh, Muslim advocates and immigration advocates throughout the country saying this is just a veiled attempt to stop Muslims from entering the country. Carmel, did the travel ban aimed at specific Muslim countries amount to the, quoting here, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country that Trump had called for? Well, he didn't quite get that, but the executive order did initially focus on Muslim-majority countries. So, you know, very clearly remember being in Dulles on, in January 2017, and the, the folks who were predominantly affected were coming from um, Muslim-majority countries. You know, in the beginning, Iraq was affected. There were people who were coming from visiting family who couldn't get through. Um, and again, go back to his 2015 statements calling for a complete and total shutdown of Muslims entering the country. This was him fulfilling a campaign promise. Um, in addition to that, the first iteration of the ban actually also had um, people were giving people of um, priority of religious minorities uh, to enter the United States. And if you're giving priority to religious minorities in Muslim-majority countries, well, you can read between the lines there. Here is Mark in Salisbury, Maryland. Mark, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, Kojo. Uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, really Trump is the greatest con artist that ever existed. Because he told his supporters, okay, we banned all the Muslims, no more Muslims are coming in. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, Egypt, those countries are Muslim countries. But his, his supporters, his, his diehard supporters, unless they are Harvard graduates, they don't know that those are Muslim countries. They were coming and going as they please. In the meantime, he picked the seven worst off, the poorest of the poor in the world, which are like Yemen or Sudan or Somalia or Syria, that are all being, you know, you know how Syria was. So those guys got banned, and he told his supporters, okay, we banned the Muslims. With all the Muslims coming in are from Saudi Arabia, they were coming and going as they please. But his supporters don't know that those are Muslim countries. And the first country he visited was Saudi Arabia, and he was dancing with them, the sword dance, because they gave him hundreds of millions of dollars as a tip, just a tip, because that's an old Arab custom. They call it bashish, you know. So... They got the, he got his money from them, and that's okay. the whole bottom line for Trump. It's money. They, in, 
Indeed. Thank you very much for your call, Mark, because Edward Mitchell, many questioned how the countries on the list were selected and the logic of which were included and which were not. That is precisely what Mark was addressing. What do you make of it? You know, a few things. So number one, you know, I think that uh, President Trump absolutely picked, uh, you could say, the low-hanging fruit. He picked on the Muslim countries that he thought he could get away with picking on. Obviously, he was not going to ban Saudi Arabia, which is a a major military ally of the United States and a country that he obviously has personal ties to. Uh, he wasn't going to ban the UAE for the same reason, uh, and he, even though you know some of the 9/11 hijackers came from countries that were not targeted by the Muslim ban, he picked on the countries that you know he thought he could get away with banning. And obviously, he couldn't ban every Muslim country in the world because that would be indisputably unconstitutional. So he tried to ban as many of the countries as he could get away with banning. And I think even though it was only seven countries, you're talking about hundreds of millions. Of people that were impacted by the end of this, when you add all the numbers up, the populations of all of these countries. And he made it even more clear that he was going after Muslims because the very first version of the ban had an exception. If you were a religious minority within one of those countries, you could still come to the United States. Well, obviously, if you're a Muslim-majority country and you're a religious minority in the country, you're not a Muslim. So the first version of the ban was explicitly uh, you know, designed to ban as many Muslims as he could get away with banning. And as your caller said, you know, the real purpose was to send a message to his anti-Muslim supporters. I've done what you asked as much as I can anyway. And they were happy with it. You have a clear recollection of the day that the Trump administration rolled out the ban. You say the timing was particularly and intentionally hurtful to the people it targeted. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, normally, you know, if an administration announces a new policy, especially an immigration rule, there will be time for the public to comment on it, time for the government to prepare. In this case, President Trump was inaugurated on Friday, January 20th, the following Friday evening, not even the morning, that evening, he signed the executive order. I mean, immediately unleashing chaos uh, at airports across the country and around the world, because immediately it came into effect. And so you had 700 people in total Uh, who were detained, arrested at airports in our country, people who had gotten on a plane in Syria or uh, uh, Libya or whatever country they came from, uh, where they were, at that time, they were allowed to come. And by the time they landed in the United States, uh, they were banned and they were not able to complete their journey. And that included lawful permanent residents, people who may have been in this country for a year, 10 years, 20 years, a family here, a business here, even they in the first version were not allowed to come. And so it just unleashed utter chaos. It was, it seemed to be deliberately designed uh, to hurt as many people as possible. And Steve Bannon actually said that the timing was deliberate, that they were actually hoping to spark backlash among leftists and liberals, as they would call uh, th- those Americans, uh, because Steve Bannon felt that would make Donald Trump supporters even happier. So it was really playing dice with people's lives, and it, it caused widespread destruction. Here's Bill in Virginia. Bill, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to say I was one of the Americans that responded when the Muslim ban went into effect. I was uh, I went down to Dulles Airport, and the thing that struck me the most of the outpouring of support for the Muslims coming into the United States were 
how many former Peace Corps and former uh, and current and former State Department diplomats were there. I knew everybody, and I'm former Peace Corps and former State Department. It was just amazing to see that all these Americans who'd lived in Muslim countries, who had positive experiences overseas, were among those that mobilized to support Muslims coming to the Thank U.S. You. It's really quite Thank you. Thank you very much for your call, Bill. We'll talk with Carmel Delshad about that when we come back. I'm Kojo Nandi. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. We're discussing the Trump Muslim ban and President Biden lifting the ban on his first day in office. Our last caller was talking about demonstrations. Carmel Delchad, the reaction to the ban was swift and loud, and you were an eyewitness to some of those protests locally. What did you see and what struck you about the protests? Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, including the tape that you played at the beginning of the segment, um, it, it was uh, quite a sight. You know, I got out of my car at the parking lot at Dulles, and I didn't even have to look beyond two feet before I saw protesters walking into the international um, uh, terminal with balloons and signs to welcome people as they made it through immigration. Um, you know, the the amount of people that were there were just crowded the hall completely. And I remember very distinctly that whenever somebody would come out of immigration um, from behind the, the security section, that people would erupt in cheers as soon as they were out, you know, in a way of welcoming them. One of the things that, that sort of sticks with me till this day is um, a husband and wife uh, who were traveling. Um, the husband was picking up his wife. She was in Iraq and she's a green card holder. She was held up for questioning for three hours. Um, and a veteran happened to be there, and he gave his purple heart to this husband. He said, like, this isn't what I fought for. Um, this is my purple heart to you um, to welcome you to this country and to say that this is not what America stands for. And, I, you know, it was kind of a chaotic scene. Uh, we weren't even sure what we were witnessing, myself and a couple of other journalists. But they, uh, he actually gave his purple heart to this husband, and they kept it, uh, and he kept it to this day. And... Um, it was just a, a sight to behold. Let's talk about some of the effects of the ban, Carmel. In your reporting, you've spoken to many people who saw their families torn apart, including families from this area. Can you tell us about some of them? Of course, yes. I, I had a story that um, just aired this morning on WAMU.org, and um, it chronicles really two families who've been torn apart by the ban. One of them uh, is a Syrian-American. She lives in Falls Church, uh, and she went over to Lebanon to help with the Syrian refugee care efforts over there, and she ended up meeting um, a field coordinator who himself is a Syrian refugee who worked for an NGO there. Um, it, it's kind of a, a weird 21st century twist on, on their love story, but they fell in love and they got engaged. Um, but he's not been able to enter the country since they've been engaged since 2017. She's been trying to mm-hmm. petition the government to bring him over on a fiancé visa, and now really time is of the essence because she's pregnant with their first child, um, 
and she's due in April. And she's, she's wondering, well, if I give birth, will I give birth alone? And if so, then I'll have to wait until the baby and I are cleared to travel and we'll go to Lebanon so we can finally be reunited as a family. This is just one of thousands of stories of people locally and nationally, even internationally, who've been touched by the ban. And advocates are saying, you know, everybody has a unique story. And, and with Biden rescinding the ban, it is no longer not law currently. But there's still a backlog of cases, thousands of cases to get through that were pending, that were denied. Um, and each one of those has a story to tell. You know, Edward Mitchell, your organization spent much of the past four years trying to help people who face serious crises because of this ban. Is there any way to calculate the number of people affected by the ban? Not really. I mean, at CARE, you know, we've got around 30 chapters nationwide. And if you total up all the complaints we received, all the clients we helped, you're really talking about thousands of people around the country. And then, you know, who knows how many more people who didn't even bother to try to come anymore because the ban was in place. So there's no way to quantify it, but you can say there were many people. And what really concerns me is not only the people who were banned, but the damage that can't be reversed. You know, what about someone who needed to come here for medical treatment, life-saving medical treatment, and they died, you know, while waiting uh, to get here because of the ban? What about the mother uh, who wasn't able to come here to see her child before her child passed away of, of an illness? You know, what about someone who was coming here to go to school? They had a, 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 an accepted application to a top university, and they missed out on the chance to come here, to go to college, to go to grad school here because of the ban. So there are countless people who have suffered irreparable damage. We're happy the ban is gone, and we're going to be working very hard to try to get people who are impacted to get them into this country so they can reunite with their families, go to school, start their jobs. But there are a lot of people who are damaged, and that damage you know, just cannot be undone. Carmel, how about waivers? Didn't the ban allow for some people to apply for waivers and get into the country that way? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, later iterations of the ban did uh, have a process for waivers, but it was not guaranteed. And speaking with immigration experts, they said a lot of times waivers were rarely granted. Um, State Department data from December 2017 to December 2020 shows that there were about 66,000 uh, applications that were considered for a favor, uh, for a waiver rather, but uh, only about 24,000 actually had waivers issued. So there is a plan now um, under the State Department to uh, direct embassies and consulates to process visa applications for people who are subject to the restrictions. And uh, th those should be rolling out any, any moment, really. Um, but in the meantime, people are still waiting to hear what happens from now out. We got an email from Will who writes, I'm a liberal and I do not believe in discrimination, nor did I support Trump. Muslims, however, who complain about Americans' fears and concerns about unlimited travel to and from Muslim-majority countries should understand that when there are Muslim leaders committing terrorist acts and kidnapping and beheading so-called infidels on camera in the name of Islam, most non-Muslims, even liberals, would support some form of travel restrictions. Edward Ahmed Mitchell, how would you respond to that? Well, I think that goes to tell you that no matter whether someone calls themselves a liberal or a conservative, that does not make them immune to uh, being an unknowing, uh, an unaware bigot. I mean, first of all, just to address the, the factual claim he made, he said that Muslim leaders are going around decapitating people or engaging in violence. That's just factually not true. In fact, groups like ISIS absolutely hate 
uh, Muslim leaders who currently exist around the world and are dedicated to overthrowing those leaders. So when you do see extremist Muslims engaging in violence, as we did during the rise of ISIS, you know, those are individual people, not leaders, not countries, not governments, individual extremists. And just like we don't, you know, attribute radicalism to all Republicans or all conservatives because what happened on January 6th of the Capitol, just like I as a Muslim, you know, don't look strangely or want to ban white men from uh, from coming to this country because some of the people who've blown up mosques in this country, opened fire at mosques around the world were white men, just like I don't do that because that would be racist and bigoted and ridiculous. Uh, our dear uh, emailer uh, should have the same perspective. Uh, you don't punish an entire group of people because of the actions of a few extremists. And as, an Amer- as Americans, as a lawyer, I mean, even if you wanted to do that, you can't do it. The Constitution does not allow you to punish an entire faith group because you're afraid that some members of that faith group might do something bad. That is not how America works. That's not how the law works. That's not how the Constitution works. So I would hope my dear friend would uh, study a little bit more uh, of current events mm-hmm. uh, and also meet with some Muslims so that he knows what Muslims really believe and practice and can recognize that the overwhelming majority of Muslims here and abroad um, are wonderful people just like anyone else um, and pose no threat uh, to their neighbors. Here's Jeremy in Washington. Jeremy, your turn. Hi, Jeremy. Are you there? Thank you. I appreciate you taking my call. I think uh, one of the things that we have to try to get our minds around is what would even allow a rational American to legitimize something like this. One thing I'd say, and I don't think it was the actual goal of the administration, I think there's probably was more of a generalized hatred racist thing. But I think if you were to just decide, I'm going to like do a travel ban, the five top sponsors of state terrorism, violent state terrorism, because we all know there's a lot going on out there. It's not violent. I think it's still, and I could be wrong about this. It would still be predominantly, Muslim countries that are doing that. Okay. Now, um, well, no, no, we are running out of time. So you have 30 seconds, Edward Ahmed Mitchell, to respond to that, please. Well, I'll just note that, you know, if the definition of terrorism is killing innocent people to achieve a political or religious goal, then the top five countries are not all going to be Muslim-majority countries. In fact, if you're just looking at the behavior of governments, uh, you're going to be looking at places like Myanmar, which has committed ethnic cleansing against Rohingya Muslims. You're going to look at places like China, which is currently engaged in a genocide of Uyghur Muslims. And in fact, many okay. victims of American foreign policy would say, you know, we have some concerns about <laughs> the American government. So, you know, yep. this notion that you're going to say Muslims and Muslim countries are responsible for all the terrors in the world is factually inaccurate. Edward Ahmed Mitchell is an attorney and the deputy director of the Council of American Islamic Relations. Um, Carmel Delshad is a reporter and editor at WMU, at least for the next few weeks or so. Carmel is moving on. Carmel, I have missed seeing you for the past almost a year. And I want to say on behalf of everybody at WMU, we're all going to miss you, your presence in the studio and on the air. So thank you so much for joining us, Carmel, and good luck to you. Thank you so much, Pedro. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Chess Champ Jennifer Yu explains how much of the hit Netflix series The Queen's Gambit rings true. I'm Kojo Namdi.
WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.